Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Rise and Fall, based out of our study on the first four chapters of 1 Samuel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're getting close to winding down these, this series here. Just to reiterate, y'all, we're going to have Dutch Sheets next week. You're going to want to be here for Dutch Sheets. Um, going to bring a powerful word. Dutch, if you don't know Dutch, his book, Intercessory Prayer, I read in my early years, shaped my prayer life. Um, his book, Dream, inspired, just a great author, a great speaker, um, has been known to just pray for revival in our nation. You're going to want to be here next week. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. We believe it to be fully inspired, fully inerrant, your breath, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would guard my lips, God. We know, we all know that from time to time, Caleb says stupid stuff. So Lord, this morning, guard my lips. But we ask that your word would pierce our hearts. Revive us, we pray. Lord, cut away from me, cut away from us anything that displeases you. Deposit in us anything that would help us to advance your kingdom in the coming days. All of our hearts want you this morning, God. All of our hearts want you this morning. As we honor your word, speak, Lord. Speak, Jesus. In your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. I want to start this morning in Acts uh, chapter 19. I want to read you a passage from Acts 19. Um, so here's Acts 19. Um, Verses 11 through 16 it says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, he leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I've always loved this story. I giggle as I think about these religious men running away naked. I did a little streaking in my high school years, you know, but not running from any demons. Running for my mama. Happy Mother's Day, mom, if you hear that. We're not religious around here if you didn't know that. <laughs> the text is interesting, though. It clearly implies that Paul had a unique anointing. The Greek word translated uh, here as extraordinary means a peculiar expression. Not usual or common. Not one that falls frequently. So God is using Paul in power in a really strange way. His aprons, claws that touch his skin. Scholars often point out that Paul was a tent maker. These were his sweat aprons that he would wear as he worked. And people would send his aprons away. And if you had a demon and you touched the apron, the demon would leave. Or if you had a disease, you would be healed at the touch of Paul's apron. And these sons of Sceva, they're not like Simon the sorcerer who we catch in the earlier chapters of Acts. You remember Simon the sorcerer sees Philip um, operating in power and Peter operating in power. And he asks if he can buy the anointing. He says, I'll give you money if you'll give me the power that you operate in. And Peter says, I see in you 
the bitterness I see in you guile. Peter rebukes him harshly. But they're not like Simon the sorcerer. What the sons of Sceva do is they say, we'll just copy Paul. We'll just say what Paul says. We'll do what Paul does and we'll get the results that Paul gets. They say forgery is the greatest form of flattery, but counterfeit does not work in the spiritual realm. You cannot counterfeit authority. God's not into forgery. The text says they invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They say to a demonic entity in the name of the Lord Jesus who Paul preaches. But here, this is so fascinating, if you'll let this thought roll for a minute. Here we see that even the name of Jesus is not to be used as some sort of incantation or spell. That they invoke the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit stands by and watches them be mugged by a demon. They pronounce even that most precious and beautiful name, Jesus. And the demoniac beats them, strips them of their clothes. God's just not into forgery. Now, allow this thought to roll around in your head for a moment. But the Holy Spirit will use Paul's sweat rags. Paul's sweat rags are driving out demons. The Holy Spirit so honors the man whose heart burns for Jesus, who says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. The man who says, everything to me is rubbish except for to know him and the beauty of his glory. The man, Paul, who says, all of my life is loving and knowing Jesus well. The Holy Spirit says, I like that so much that even when people touch his sweat rags, I'll heal him. And the demons are so afraid of Paul's sweat. But when a Jewish man stands who doesn't know Jesus and pronounces the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit steps aside and says, this will be funny. What a fascinating thought. And there's a paradigm, there's something revealed about the heart of our God that it would do us well to grip to. God is not into these little incantations or magic spells. He's not into outward religious. God's into heart postures that really love Jesus. That's what he's into. Now, as we approach our passage today, we remember that the Lord tells Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant It'll be a token of God's presence in the midst of Israel. The Lord tells Joshua to carry it around Jericho and to lead the people through the Jordan River in the promised land as he carries the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is this token of God's presence that God honors throughout Scripture. But this morning, as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 4, we'll see that Israel will go to battle with the Philistines and they will ask for the sons of Eli to bring the Ark of the Covenant and God will stand by and watch them be utterly destroyed. They bring the token of God's presence into battle and God stands by and watches the Philistines overthrow these priests of of, apparently of the living God because God is not pleased with forgery. They'll do what Joshua did, but the man carrying the ark is not Joshua. 
And the people of Israel, I will read, say, you know, I'm ahead of myself here. The people of Israel will read as the sons of Eli bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp. They'll release a great shout. And this reminds us of the shout at Jericho. But again, the Ark of the Covenant is coming in. But these people don't walk with God. And God will not be manipulated. And God's arm will not be twisted. Bring the Ark of the Covenant and God will stand. So today we approach a very strange passage of Scripture. And this is the first time in history where the Ark of the Covenant will be taken from Israel. They bring it as a token, as if God has to do what they want Him to do now because they have the token holy object and God stands by and watches them utterly destroyed. Our passage will tell us that some 34,000 people will die in battle. Like the sons of Sceva, they try to just do what Moses did. Just do what Joshua did. Hope that the Ark of the Covenant will somehow be yielded as a holy relic. They storm in carrying the Ark of the Covenant that Moses made and Joshua carried. But Joshua prevailed, man. He saw Jericho's walls crumble. Eli's sons will crumble under the weight of the Philistines. Demons ran from Paul's sweat, but the sons of Sceva were beaten down by demons trying to yield the name of Jesus. So let's read our passage. I'm, my mind's spinning in 20 different directions. Let's read. I'm going to stay on my notes. Otherwise, y'all going to get me talking about streaking again. I know that's your goal. 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11 reads this. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. They killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came in the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were dead. Now, for the last two centuries, Scripture tells us that the Philistines have been a constant enemy of Israel. 
We know from archaeology that the Philistines, um, they camped, they, they lived along the coastline of Israel. Other passages of scripture tell us that the Philistines had five kind of city-states and five separate kings, and they seemed to thrive throughout the age of the judges. And remember, Saul will have his tiffs with the Philistines. So think in, in Judges, um, Samson's fighting with the Philistines. And in First Samuel, Saul will fight with the Philistines. And remember, obviously, David will slay that uh, Philistine giant there, Philistine giant at the beginning of his ministry. And it's not until David really catches some momentum in his kingship that the Philistines are really put down. So some Two centuries, Israel is fighting with the Philistines. And the Philistines are growing. They are thriving along the coast. And they're not really into just raiding Israel for the sake of raiding. Neither is Israel. Israel is not this kind of rogue little band of people who's just fighting to fight. These are two people groups who are trying to thrive in the land. These are two people groups who intend to prosper, who intend to to spread, who intend to take dominion of the area. And so for for 200 years, they're head-to-head fighting over who is going to take possession of the land. And here the, the Philistines say to each other in our passage today, you better fight, O Philistines, because if we lose today, we'll become slaves to these Israelites. We have years of battle, um, years of turmoil between these two people groups. So we pick up this morning in the middle of another fight. And the fight says that it was the Philistines who advanced first uh, against the Israelites. In the first battle, 4,000 Israelites died and they fled before the Philistines. And the text tells us that the people are shocked. They're discouraged. They're grieved. They're afraid. They seem to have thought that this battle was in the bag. They're the chosen people of God. Surely God loves Israel more than he loves the Philistines. But they forgot that with blessing comes responsibility. God has placed his favor on Israel. God has revealed himself in a special way to this nation. But with that kind of revelation comes responsibility. So Jesus in John chapter 9 verse 39 through 41, Jesus says this, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to Jesus, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have, you would have had no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So Jesus here tells the Pharisees that you are accountable for your revelation. If you were uninformed, that would be one thing, but you are informed. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have scripture memorized backwards and forwards and still you reject the God of scripture. Your judgment will be more harsh. And here I think Israel thinks, surely we have this in the bag. We are God's people. But with their revelation and with their favor comes responsibility. And so the scripture often says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so as you learn and as you understand and as you're raised in the house of God, you are accountable to live with that segment of revelation. To cook that idea down. Essentially what I'm saying is Israel knows better, man. 
They have sinned and dishonored God for years and they know better. Again, if you haven't been with us through the earlier chapters or you're, you, you know, you've read for Samuel, but you don't quite remember the story. Um, what we've learned thus far is that um, Eli is the priest. Um, Eli is too old to serve as an active priest. There's a thing in the law of Israel where priests, once they pass a certain age, were no longer required to function as a priest because priests did heavy lifting. They were butchers, man, carrying animals around. And so Eli is the priest, but he doesn't, he's not a functioning priest. His two sons are functioning priests. And the, the passage has the, told us thus far throughout the narrative that Eli's sons, they steal from the sacrifices. There were certain parts of the sacrifice that the priests were allowed to eat. But Eli's sons just eat whatever they want. And if people bring a sacrifice and they say um, to Eli's sons, the priest, hey, this part belongs to God. You can have this part. But this piece of the sacrifice belongs to God. The scriptures say that the sons of Eli have these little mugs, almost these little younger servants who come to them and say, give us your sacrifice or we'll, we'll beat you and take you from it. Take it from you. The scripture also says that um, these men, Eli's sons, were sleeping with women at the beginning, at the entrance of the tent. There were women who were supposed to serve the tent uh, of meeting and, and these priests were having sexual affairs with the women at the tent. And so we know from Scripture that God is not pleased with the religious leadership. And we've already encountered two prophetic words where God says um, through once through a prophet who's unnamed and second through Eli that God will destroy the entire house of Eli. So we know that they dishonor God and God is displeased. And yet somehow they still assume that God will be for them in battle. So after the first defeat, 4,000 men die. The elders ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now that's the right question to ask. That actually shows some pretty sound theology. That if Israel is defeated, it's not because they've been outwitted or outarmed. If Israel is defeated, it's because the scripture says because God has defeated them. Their failure is not in their own wisdom or in their own strength. Their failure is in their sin. And whether they'd like to realize it or not, the greatest advantage that the Philistines have in this battle today is the wickedness of Israel. Is the sin of Israel. It's Israel's staleness. It's Israel's rebellion. And we too, if we are defeated, it is not because the enemy has outwitted us or outarmed us. Jesus said, I will establish my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. The gates of hell is imagery um, which... The elders of a city, they would sit outside the gates. That's where the men met. And so when the men were going to war, they would sit outside the gates and they would plan and they would plot and they would scheme. So Jesus is literally saying that Satan will plan and plot and scheme against my church, but he will not prevail against her. So if you are defeated this morning, if a church experiences defeat, it is not because the enemy has outwitted her. It's not because God has been overpowered by Satan. 
if we live in defeat, it's most likely because we live in sin. So on one hand, God says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, repent or I will remove my lampstand from among you. So on one hand, hell has no dominion over the church. And on the other hand, Jesus says, if you live like hell, I will walk away from you. And you will be defeated, but you're not defeated because you're outarmed or outwitted. You're defeated because you betrayed me and walked away from me. If you're defeated, it's because I have removed my lampstand from your midst. Jesus says it's the unrepentant church that will lose her influence and fruitfulness. It's because they've rejected God and God has removed his distinct glory from their midst. Now again, the elders ask the right question. Why has God defeated us today? But they respond inappropriately. They acknowledge that it's God who has defeated them, but their response is not repentance. Their response is, Call for the ark. The text literally says it will save us. I want to tell you this morning that the right response when God's presence seems to be absent is good old fashioned repentance. The appropriate response would have been for the elders to call a fast. Somebody should have got out some sackcloth and ashes. The elders should have led the people of Israel in the law of the Lord to examine their hearts and repent of any disobedience. They should have asked questions like, how have we treated the poor? Have we dishonored the widow? Is there a lack of justice in our midst? Have we dishonored the holiness of God? Are we proud? Have we gone after other gods? These are the questions to ask. The appropriate response would have been intercession, prayer, crying out to God in desperation. Sometimes the best thing you and I can do is to simply ask the question, God, have we displeased you in some way? Are you displeased with us? Sometimes the best response for me in my seasons of struggle is to hit my knees in the prayer closet and say, Lord, it's my deepest desire to love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul and all of my strength and all of my being, God, all of my mind. I want to really love you well, Jesus, but sometimes I'm struggling. I need your grace. I need you to help me. Sometimes it's the the deepest place of conviction is, God, I really want to know you and love you well. Forgive me for days when I don't love you with the kind of love that you deserve. How do you love Jesus this morning? Now, rather than crying out to God in repentance, they send for the wicked sons of Eli to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And they treat the Ark as if it's a religious relic that will bring victory. The Puritan, Matthew Henry, says it's common for those that have estranged themselves from the vitals of religion to discover to discover a great fondness for the rituals and external observance of it. Listen to that statement again closely. 
It's common for those that have estranged themselves from the vitals of religion to discover a great fondness for the rituals and external observance of it. What is Henry saying here? That when a people walk away from real heartfelt passion for God, they often become religious and begin to love the externals of religion. It's much easier to dress like the rest of the church and to tuck your shirt in and to show up at church and to pat yourself on the back and say, I am religious. than to get up in the morning, have your cup of coffee and say, God, I am tired, but I really love you. It's much easier to put on your tie and use the appropriate Christianese than it is to get out of your car and see someone struggling and to stop and say, do you need help? And to try to administer the real love of Jesus. Now, wearing a tie is easy. Loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself, that's where the real work comes in. And Matthew Henry says, people love to put on their tie and find some outward thing to say this. I do this and I'm religious. Matthew Henry says, in reality, God's looking for people who really love, who really carry a a part posture that has covenantal relationship with the living God. Haley and I, my, my wife Haley and I were standing at a little festival some years ago. I don't know. We were. I was. 22 or 23. And we had a a stack of New King James Bibles and we were standing at a little table and we were just trying to talk to people, love people, encourage people. If we would ask, do you have a Bible? We got a Bible. Do you have a a church? We'd love if you'd visit our church, try to talk to them about the gospel. You know, you do these little kinds of things. One of our guys was dressed like a clown and making balloons for the kids that passed by. And he was just being extra, extra creepy. He was just awkward and creepy. And so I'm standing next to him trying to ease the awkwardness. And an older gentleman cornered Haley, my wife. I'm kind of watching out of the corner of my eye. He corners Haley and he begins to give her a good talking to about the fact that we're passing out New King James Version Bibles. He says the reason the church is ineffective today, you know, is because we've quit reading the King James And after a moment, I stepped over and got a little defensive. To be really blunt, I'm just <laughs> being blunt and honest. The King James only arguments are really bad arguments. They're just not good arguments. And I'm, I'm young. I get that. I'm a young little guy. The King James is a fine translation, by the way. Great Bible. If you read the King James, it's great. It's a fine translation. But at the end of the day, it's a translation. And anyone who's bilingual understands that that trying to translate one language to another language, it's very hard to grasp the ideas perfectly. It takes a little bit of work. And I stepped over as this elderly man was mugging my wife. And I said to him, in in my 23-year-old arrogant voice, I say, you do realize the New Testament was written in Greek, sir? He says, yes. Say, so what if I lived in Greece and spoke Greek? Do I have to learn Old English to read the King James Bible? Since, after all, it is the only true Bible. And the reason we're not having revival is because we're not reading it. And I'm not lying to you when he looked me in the face and said, Yes, if you speak Greek, you need to learn English and read the King James Bible. I'm not lying. And I say to him, So, sir, if I speak Hebrew and I can read the Old Testament in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, 
You're telling me that I have to learn English, and not only English, but I really need to become familiar with old English in order to read the Bible. And I'm not lying to you when I tell you that he said yes. Never mind the fact that the King James itself has gone through multiple revisions. That's the argument for a different day. And he quoted to me Hebrews 4. He started to say the word of God. And I said, in my 23-year-old arrogance, I said, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. No man is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give account. And I looked him in the eye and said, I know the scriptures too, sir, and you're still wrong. Now, that was arrogant of me, but I was mad. Leave my little wife alone. She's feisty, but she's not always feisty in those conversations. Now, when real repentance and real spiritual fervency is lost, we look for some kind of outward thing to point to. For this man, it was these young kids handing out the new King James Version. My greatest frustration in the moment was rather than witnessing and loving people, I'm now arguing with a Christian about Bible translations. Why not get off your high horse and actually try to love people and share the gospel with us? And I'm saying to you this morning that when we find ourselves in rebellion and when we find ourselves in seasons where God's presence doesn't seem to be rich and things aren't quite clicking and something just feels off, I'm telling you that we have got to look deeper, think harder. We need some real spiritual discernment and insight. In the 70s, the problem was that these new charismatics were bringing drums in the church. And then it was that we got rid of the organs. And I hate to tell you, but it's actually not the skinny jeans. The problem in the church today is not young folks wearing skinny jeans. I would rather you get yourself a pair of skinny jeans and come in here with your heart on fire for Jesus. I would just rather it. Whether God is moving or not is a, is a question of our heart postures. Is your heart really ablaze this morning with love for Jesus? Is faithfulness to God and his word the chief motivation of the people? If God wasn't moving, it wasn't because we had walked away from the King James Bible. It's because we had walked away from real repentance. If God's not moving in our nation, it's not because we've quit on five-piece suits. I hate to tell you, but Jesus did not own a five-piece suit. It's because we've quit on really loving and burning for the gospel of Jesus. How do you feel about the gospel this morning? We had revival in the old days, but it wasn't the five-piece suits. It was hearts of repentance, hearts that burned for Jesus. It was some old grandma laying on the altar praying, interceding day in and day out for her grandkids. It was prayer and it was passion that, that brought revival. I want you to know this morning, guys, that at our worst, we all love religion. Gives us some outward excuse, some outward solution. And I also want you to know that if we have a problem, it's our cold, stale, religious hearts that are the problem. And you guys know me. I love, I love the old movements of God. I love Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon. I love the Puritans. But it wasn't the style of Charles Spurgeon that shook the world. It was his fervent love for the gospel. 
So I'm not trying to dress like I live in the 18th century or use old English. I'm trying to mock Charles Spurgeon. I do want to mock his fervent love for the gospel, though. And the sons of Sceva thought that they could just mock Paul's outward and that they would get the response. What they should have done is mocked Paul's inward. Follow me as I follow Christ, the man says. And the sons of Eli say, we'll run in with the Ark of the Covenant like Moses and Joshua. Do you remember Moses used to meet with the Lord at the tent of the meeting and Joshua would stay afterwards. After Moses was long done speaking with God, Joshua would stay in the presence of the Lord and just wait. They should have mocked that. Again, it's the same ark. It's the same ark that crossed the Jordan River. Same ark that Mark, that the Moses carried. Same ark that Joshua carried. It's different people carrying it though. And we can keep our buildings and our songs and all of our formulas and we can say we're going to do what past generations did and somehow that's going to lead us into Revival, and it's not the buildings of the people, it's the heart postures man. Now, 1 Samuel 2 told us this. Eli was very old. I'm reading from 1 Samuel 2, 23 through 23. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they would lay with the women who were serving in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. The people of Israel are fully aware of the sinfulness of Eli's sons. Eli's sons have stolen their sacrifices. They know that Eli's sons are sleeping around in the tent of meeting. They know that Eli's sons do not love Yahweh. Why in the world do they shout for victory as they see Eli's sons coming in the camp? Why not groan, oh God? It's the sinful priest coming. They're the last people I need in our midst in this moment. Why not moan? Here come the rebellious priest. Have they become so spiritually dull? You must think it's the holy garbs these priests wear that will earn favor with God. Is it their proud stride that God must be pleased with? I'm telling you this morning, don't be duped with religious charisma. Don't be duped with someone who dresses right and looks right and seems to have all the right language. If their life is wicked, they're not the person you want in your corner. You should turn off the televangelist from time to time. He might be dressed so sharp because he's stealing resources from the church. get you a prayer partner to call when you're struggling, somebody who really burns, somebody who tries to live holy, who really fears God. Some of us, I'm, I'm, I feel like I can be harsh this morning. I feel the anointing of God to be a little straightforward. Some of us need to quit running around from meeting and meeting, trying to find the next newest, greatest prophet to speak to us when we're struggling. You need to call your mama who prays for you. You need to find somebody in the church who really tries to live holy and let them look you in the face and say, I need help. We need to stop putting people on these religious platforms and saying, oh, they must be the exalted one. You find somebody who really burns and really loves God. 
get off my harsh pedestal for a moment. No, these men, they're not like Joshua at all. These are the sons of Korah. These are Aaron's sons who offered strange fire on the altar. Do you remember the story of Korah in Exodus, the house of Korah, and they rebel against Moses? And do you remember that Moses says to all of Israel, he says, if these men die in some natural way, then I am not a man of God. But if God causes the earth to split open and they fall straight down into Sheol, then you will know that I'm a man of God. And God causes some kind of crazy earthquake to break the earth and all of Korah's house sinks into the bottom of the earth. And Aaron's sons, they were priests too. And they brought strange fire. The scripture calls an unauthorized fire. And the text says that a flame was released from God that consumed. They brought strange fire and they were consumed by fire. No, these men are not Joshua and Moses coming to the rescue. These are the sons of Korah. These are Aaron's sons offering strange fire. Israel knows better, man, when a wicked man of God comes running in to save the day. I'm running the other way. I don't want anything to do with some man of God who dresses right, uses the right words, but who's the fruit of their life dishonors the holiness of God. You run the other way. You get people in your life who honor the holiness of God. So again, the elders didn't call fast. They didn't repent. They thought to themselves, we'll just do what past generations did. The ark will save us. We'll get the results that past generations got. God's just not into being manipulated like that. If we want to be a people of God's presence, if we want to be a house that really knows the glory of God, then we must be a house of repentance. We must be a people of holiness. We must be a people who takes the gospel seriously in all of its connotations, even the the justice issues. What do we do for the poor and what do we do for the widow? And are we people who really are compassionate? Read the prophets. I beg you, read the prophets and listen to how many times God says, I reject you, Israel, because the way you treat the poor. Now, again, I'm not propagating some formula. I'm just saying that those kind of things need to sink into our hearts. We need to really consider, do we honor God? And now we'll all struggle and we all fail, but what you do with your struggle and fail matters. What you do with your struggle and fail really matters. So in conclusion, I just, I'll wrap up with this. The sons of Sceva say, let's do exactly what Paul does. And the Holy Spirit said, let's watch. This is going to be funny. Even the name of Jesus is not to be used as an incantation. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Some kind of little trick or spell. Haley and I have a, have a checkbook. You know, we don't write checks very often anymore these days, but we have a checkbook that we got like when we first got married and we've written like five checks. But Haley can actually sign the check and the money comes out of my account because we have covenant relationships. She's allowed to s- sign checks that are mine. If you put your name on my check, you will go to jail. I will, I will make sure of it. If you steal my checks and start writing checks, I will put you in jail. It's covenant God's after. It's real relationship, real intimacy.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.